This podcast was originally the audio for a work of the same name for the Nearly On Red YouTube channel, found at youtube.com slash c slash nearly on red. Though not intended to be a standalone podcast, viewers frequently consume my videos for their audio content only, so I have duplicated my work in this format to hopefully save people a step. A full list of content and platforms can be found at nearlyonred.com or the short link nearly.red, N-E-A-R-L-Y dot R-E-D. Enjoy! Lastly then, we have our other finale, SSSS Gridman. I freely confess that I have not been able to give this one the space and attention that it deserves. The combination of my work schedule, releasing on Monday, and then this one coming out on Saturday alongside others means that it gets short shrift. Works from earlier in the week give me several days to mull over, while I'm usually trying to finish the entire script the same day that this one premieres. It's a shame that my circumstance does not let me stop everything and make a separate video just for my retrospective on this series. Um, future channel goals, I guess. The reason I feel particularly frustrated over these constraints is because I am not particularly a fan of the whole tokusatsu thing that the series is based around, and yet I found it compelling anyway. I think I even said way back during the first episode that I was interested in everything I saw besides the monster versus robot stuff. I've even wondered to myself at times what the series would look like with the same characters and setting, but a different genre for the action set pieces. However, with the ending revealing a link to the real world of live-action people and the created world of the anime, suddenly the choice of genre gets added subtext. Tokusatsu shows were live-action, with actors in suits fighting in scaled-down sets to simulate giant kaiju. This is one of the things that separates it from the mecha genre, which has no tradition of being live-action, despite both of them involving giant robots. Making an animated show based on tokusatsu properties is one more step away from the realism of actors in suits, and so to have our created world and the events inside it also be one more step away from reality in-universe helps reinforce the artificial nature of the world that Akane creates. That is, no one would confuse anime settings and characters for actuality. It is clearly a crafted world. This reinforces why Akane is a god, being one step higher in realism while also linking our two mediums together across the same genre. Now that all said, I don't think it is appropriate to take our ending and conclude that the whole thing was a dream that that girl had one night. The trope of, it was all just a dream, is derided for very good reason. For those of you also watching Goblin Slayer, it's the same reason that I reject the idea that that series is just someone's D&D campaign animated, with the gods being the people playing the game. The problem with that series just being a game of pretend, or this series just being a dream, is the same problem. The storytellers have asked us to treat their characters and their struggles as authentic, to empathize with their successes and failures, and to believe in the realness of who they are. The act of experiencing a story is often referred to as the willing suspension of disbelief, 
and one of a writer's primary goals is to maintain that suspension of disbelief. Revealing that a story or its characters weren't real in-universe violates the trust that the audience has put in the storyteller. It's like explaining how a magic trick is done before it's even complete, or giving away the punchline to a joke in the middle of the telling. There's a very technical term for this kind of thing, and that term is lame. That doesn't stop people from doing it, of course, but I think in the case of Gridman, the dream is not just a fleeting, imaginary exercise that vanishes as soon as the girl wakes up to reality. In fact, it doesn't seem to disappear at all after Akane leaves it. Instead, it is its own distinct reality, but was created by that girl in the course of her dream. There are a lot of things left unexplained by the show, which I'm totally fine with, but it does leave us only guessing about the wider reality. It's likely a greater familiarity with tokusatsu shows would make my guesses more accurate, but I do think we can safely assume that all the things Alexis and Akane say about her coming from another world, and creating the city and the people in it, and the kaiju being created from her heart, all of that I think applies to the girl at the end. Since Gridmand also indicates that he came from outside, and then leaves to go outside again, then I think it's reasonable to conclude that the city that Alexis enabled Akane to create actually exists somewhere. Hyperagent Gridman likely bounces between various realities trying to stop this kind of behavior, and it just so happens that some of these realities aren't live action, but are animated worlds instead, sometimes with the dreaming creator still inside. This may even explain why we had things like the loss of his memory, or needing to dwell in both Yuta and Junk, and why at first he and the four weapons had trouble fighting simultaneously. If it was just a dream that contained them, then I feel like these issues of compatibility wouldn't exist. The disparity between two different realities, though, suggests that both of them are just that. Realities. So maybe our girl at the end was both a tokusatsu fan and an anime fan, and the world she dreamed into existence a combination of the two, leaving Gridman a bit out of sorts when it came to try to thwart Alexis. Now, I'm not running with this interpretation just to make the story real on a technicality. There are a lot of indicators that the city we see and the turmoil Akane experiences had their basis in a different reality. I've been guessing for a long time that the city was based on some earlier existence of Akane's, that she replicated her own life that existed before Alexis found her. This made the city and her home and her class and all the people in it not a fresh and original reality, but an idealization of her original reality. It answers the question, why does God go to school? The city was a grand wish-fulfillment fantasy, her ideal world where Akane is superlatively beautiful and popular and has this exciting secret life and can remove all the things that annoy her and so on. It seemed less like a fresh world created from scratch, and more like a world someone already knew, except that they changed the things they didn't like into things they did. So, what this city and the series become are not a random bit of fancy, but a journey into the psyche of the girl who wakes up at the end. Because of how Akane has set up the world, we can guess that in reality, she is not superlatively popular or considered the most beautiful in her school. 
Because she wants to control every little thing, we can guess that she feels no sense of control in reality. Because she lives in this huge expensive house, we can guess that she probably has modest accommodations in her life, and so on. Even something like Akane having big boobs probably means that her real self does not. However, the things that she likes, or at least doesn't hate, remain the same. She copies all of that, instead of creating every little detail from scratch, or maybe changes just superficial things. For example, at the end we can see the girl's uniform hanging up at the end of her bed, and it's practically the same uniform we see in the end credits with just the tie color changed. Same with the hoodie, same with the pass holder and the headphones. All the same, just different colors. I think it's reasonable to assume then that almost every detail in the city is a copy from her reality that she used as a base with slight changes as she saw fit. I don't know if you've noticed, but in the end credits most of the environment is not actually drawn, but are photographs that have been processed to blend better with the characters superimposed on them. This is probably from the girl at the end's reality, and the few shots we see from inside the classroom match up pretty well with the animated version of that classroom. So I think everything started out as her original city, including all of the people in it. As I said last time, why would a god create a bunch of people she found annoying just to have to remove them later? More likely is that she copied existing people in to populate her world, and then started taking away what she didn't like. And, as I pointed out last time, Auntie's signature power is the ability to copy. So I think that aside from creating kaiju, her imaginative powers were simply limited. This is probably part of why nothing exists beyond the city. The other part, I would guess, is a lack of self-confidence, which is probably also where her desire to be beautiful and popular comes from, as well as the dark emotions that attract Alexis in the first place. She can create kaiju because they come from the negative emotions in her heart, and for a time that means that she can make the world she thinks she wants. But as time goes on, she does more and more extreme things, culminating in her stabbing of Yuta, and so her own self-loathing increases. She's been in a downward spiral since her plan to wreck the school festival was thwarted, and I guess at some point she has had a what-have-I-become moment. Thus, as the series made clear some time ago, the Gridman Alliance has more to do than just fighting Akane's creations. They must also help fix her heart. The fact that Auntie came from her heart, as all kaiju do, and yet was able to become a person in his own right, and even turn against her, already suggested that such a change was possible in her. On a macro level then, this entire series has been about Gridman rescuing the girl at the end from the prison of her own dark emotions, which narratively also means allowing her to leave this world and wake up in her original one. Now you may have noticed I keep referring to the girl at the end rather than naming her. That live action scene begins with a shot of the pass holder that Rika owns and she also gifts to Akane, though in blue instead of pink. We see the uniform, we see her book bag beside it, we see that hoodie. There's even a picture frame in the back that I'm pretty sure says Akane. Then we see a girl wake up and look around. Now the shot could have ended just there, as all the details in that room were enough to suggest that this was Akane waking up and thus being the god leaving her dream world. 
but the shot doesn't end there. The last frame is that girl sitting up in bed and tilting her head back while framed by her window. Now, human eyesight is naturally drawn to bright areas, movement, and areas of high contrast. A cinematographer knows to keep these facts in mind when composing a shot. This final frame of the girl is silhouetted against the complete white of an overexposed window, and that creates a contrast with one element in particular, an element further emphasized by the motion of her head, her hair. Why call attention to the girl's hair? Well, this girl does not have Akane's haircut, she has Rika's haircut. Short bangs across the forehead, and hair past shoulders but above her elbows. Actually, looking beyond her to where the uniform hangs, there is also a cream-colored sweater, which should remind you of someone's default outfit. Though we did see Akane's over-the-ear headphones in that first shot, beside them are the earbuds that we always see Rika wear, just in yellow instead of blue, as surely as the pass holder is blue instead of pink. Leaning against the bed is a keyboard of all things, Yet, it wasn't Akane we see preoccupied with music, but Rika. So what does that mean? Well, the thing that makes most sense to me is that Rika in The Created City is based off Akane in real life. Like I said, she literally copy-pasted her own reality for a starting point. It's probably why Rika's living space is rich with details and imperfections and personality, while Akane's is empty aside from the kaiju. If the junk shop and their modest home is based off Akane's real-life situation, then giving herself this giant, immaculate mansion makes sense in the same way that giving herself an idealized appearance and social life does. In reality, would a house like that end up side-by-side -side with a second-hand goods store? Probably not, right? So, Rika in the city is based off the real Akane, while Akane is an idealized version of herself. The end credits become kind of interesting in that light, and even tell a bit of a story. I already said in a previous video that the change in uniforms made me think that those end credits came from an original reality instead of the city we've seen. That might be half right. It starts with just Rika and detailed shots of the school, implying her wandering around and alone in thought. Her two friends we're familiar with from the Dream City show up, and we also see other students in hallways and the background. She's actually not sitting in her normal seat, but is sitting where Yuta usually is. Then Akane shows up. From then on, we never see the other students. It's just Akane and Rika. Real Akane and her imagined ideal self. Thus, these next scenes of then spending all this happy time together are not real. Whether this is a daydream, or the original form of the city before she added others, or just a representation of the two sides of Akane coming to terms, I'm not sure. Maybe any of those. At this point, they are even wearing identical clothing, red tie and all, though we don't see anyone else dressed exactly this way. It's like she has an imaginary friend that is just a fantasy version of herself, and maybe that became the basis of Akane the God. But at the very end, it's just Rika. Her fogged breath indicates that it is cold, and the last thing we saw happening in the Dream City is that it began snowing. 
So that last bit may well be reminiscing in the city after Akane had left it. Regardless of what exactly it means, it syncs up with the importance of Rika and Akane coming to terms in our finale. Rika is Akane's original self, and so if Rika can accept Akane even after her terrible behavior, then maybe real Akane can also accept herself. At the end of last episode, this almost actually happened. Akane and Rika are speaking on the roof, and Akane dismissing all of Rika's efforts to reach her because she's just a creation. She has to love her. But then, Rika asks Akane what she thinks of her. In other words, what do you think of yourself? Akane hesitates, and then Alexis chooses that exact moment to step in and break up the conversation. I'm going to go out on a limb and guess that that was no accident. Fast forward to almost the end of this finale. Rika and Akane are sitting in her room after Akane has decided to leave. She can't stay after all that she's done. She begins to detail all of her failings, and Rika keeps saying she knows, finally adding that I know all the things that you are. Rika will give her the gift of the pass holder, explaining that wherever you go, you're just like me. She tells her to make sure she makes an impression wherever she goes, and then makes a last request. She wishes they could be together, and then says she hopes that this wish never comes true. That is, she hopes Akane, real Akane, never retreats back into the dream world again. She hopes that she never has a reason to. With that, Akane does leave the world, with only Rika's eyes widening the moment she stops feeling her hand to indicate the moment. Really, a well-executed scene all the way around. Now, this whole Rika is the original Akane thing helps me figure out a lot of things that I struggled with last time, which I will get to in a second. I just first want to point out how we can now see how much the excellent dream episode related to the rest of the series. The three each realize that they are in a dream, and so want to wake up. If you remember me talking about suspension of disbelief at the beginning of this segment, Having their illusions shattered by realizing they are dreaming is a pretty similar phenomenon. When each figures it out, Akane tries to convince them not to leave. At the time, it seems like stopping them is just part of her plan to defeat Gridman, but she seems really, really upset at her failure, right? Key to that distress is the way she tries to convince them. Rather than deny that it's a dream once they realize, she argues for the value of dreaming. She asks Rika, what's wrong with a dream? Let's keep it going just like this. To Yuta, she asks, wouldn't you rather dream forever? This isn't about them at all. It's about her wanting to stay in this dream she's created, safe from the real world that she comes from. Yuta's answer to her is that dreams are things you wake from. That goes for everyone, even you. And Akane, looking positively miserable, only says, I wish I could stay in a dream forever. Their rejection of the idealized world she gave them should have been a clue to her that she needed to reject this idealized reality that she had built, but she wasn't quite ready to let go. Now, Rika actually being original Akane helped me make sense of one of the discrepancies in these dreams, which was part of the group of mysteries that I had been having trouble rectifying. Um, I assumed these were all based on real people, and the way Akane acted toward Yuta at times, and Yuta being chosen by Gridman and all that, 
made me wonder if the original Akane had a crush on the original Yuta, with Yuta either not realizing it or crushing on the real Rika instead. There were holes in that, but now I think I see how it all connects. The unexplained things were these. Why did Akane make herself a love interest in Yuta's dream rather than a friend like in the other two? Why was Yuta sitting next to Akane with her friend Rika in the opposite corner when presumably Akane could control the seating chart? What happened between Yuta and Rika the day he lost his memory and passed out in front of the shop? Why did Akane put on the come hither act when she showed up in Yuta's room? And lastly, why did Gridman choose Yuta in the first place? This last one was even brought up again as a question right at the end, with them even pointing out that maybe it was because he sat next to her. But Rika wonders if that was the only reason, and her mind flits to a moment of catching Yuta looking her way. So she suspects then that Yuta having feelings for her may be why Gridman chose him. I agree because it clicks everything else into place. Gridman had no memories, but could still feel Yuta's feelings for Rika coming out, which means they existed before Gridman showed up. The thing that happened between Rika and Yuta only comes up again when Yuta is trying to talk about liking Rika, so it's a pretty good bet that he confessed to her that day or something similar, which is why it would be so crappy of him if he was only pretending not to remember. Akane took the designated main character seat for herself in the classroom and banished the copy of her real self to the opposite corner, resulting in the empty desk that Yuta ends up in. And Yuta turns out to be an anomaly. Everyone in this world was made to like Akane, but who does Yuta end up liking? Rika the real Akane, not the idealized one. That is why Gridman chooses him. Gridman has come to heal Akane, to convince her that she's not as broken or alone or unlovable as she believes. What better vessel then than the person who prefers the real version? Thus her come on in his bedroom and inserting herself into Rika's place in the dream and even insisting that they were dating were attempts to promote her idealized self over her original self, but Yuta doesn't bite. Her fantasy version falls short of the original in his mind, and so Gridman's mission is to bring Akane to the same conclusion. Yuta may not even be based on a real person, though if he is, I think real Akane needs to go find that guy right away. One of the last things that happens is that it starts snowing, right? Well, snow means love is a very common metaphor in anime, so if you were on the Rika and Yuta ship, I think it's safe to say that it sets sail. And from the scene after it, you might need to add a kaiju and half kaiju ship to go with it. Anyway, that is where I will stop. I'm afraid I don't have the time or the tokusatsu experience to really pull everything apart and do it justice. Um, there's still a ton going on that I never covered, but at least I finally got to make all of my circuitous guesswork fit together thanks to that little ending. 
title music by Russell J. Crowe, other music licensed from the artists at Audio Jungle, script, performance, and editing by Theta. Theta is played by Redacted. Original video can be found at youtube.com slash C slash Nearly On Red, and a full list of credits is available at nearlyonred.com. Until next time, thanks for everything.